There's something very real. I don't know if you guys experience this, but there's something really real about the, I guess, the intentionality it takes to worship next to a gym. <laughs> At, at like a at like a major workout hour, but that's cool. I was. It was just a neat kind of aha I had like. Right, and this world is always going to offer a distraction from real worship and from focusing on the Lord. So we praise God for a space to gather in that's next to a gym so we get to practice being intentional. Praise God for every trial, every struggle, anything and everything that builds up Christ inside of us is worth it. Thank goodness. It's amazing what having a real why it's amazing what that allows us to endure through last week I mentioned some some observations from a psychologist by the name of Jordan Peterson he's been studying humanness and human behavior for a long time and I shared that what he's found in all of his research is that uh, really in every age demographic all over the world, hi Elizabeth, um, that whenever you find destructive human behavior, all over the world in every de age demographic, in every Social economic class, whatever you find destructive human behavior, things like addiction, abuse, criminal activity, bad marriages, dysfunctional relationships, rebellious kids, all those kinds of things. He says, wherever you find that, one of the primary underlying shared roots is what he calls people who are adrift. And that's just the word he uses to describe people that have no purpose and no bless you and no meaning and no driving force in their life no no meta narrative um nothing larger than themselves to give themselves to that's one of the most common underlying roots when you see destructive human behavior and he and he and he kind of um, I think he explains very beautifully that uh, because life is hard and about that he's very honest he's a he's a college professor so he lecture lectures to college students um, and he just shares with them very very frankly and plainly and honestly that life is hard and life is struggle and life is suffering and life will cost you, and life will crush you. And so he says, when you put those things together, when you put together people who are adrift or who have no purpose, 
who have no meaning, who have nothing larger than themselves that they are living for, when you couple that with the, with the crushing nature of life and the pain and the struggle of life, he said that's when you get real misery. And that's, and that's how he describes a high percentage of college students these days. He says they are adrift and miserable. And it's when the misery takes place and takes root in a life that's when all that destructive behavior comes about because most of it is simply an attempt to medicate that misery and so that's where drug and alcohol use comes comes in that's where um, abuse and abusive relationships come in that's where debt and overspending come in it's all really just grasping at something to take away the pain grasping at something to take away the misery and and when that grasping happens for long enough and fails often enough which it always will that's when hopelessness takes root and he and and that's how he describes many of the of the students that he lectures is they are just hopeless they're adrift and miserable they're engaged in a bunch of activities that are just attempting to medicate that pain and as that fails over and over and over again it leads to a real hopelessness and um you know um whether or not he's a believer i'm not sure as i mentioned last week but what he's speaking speaks volumes and aligns beautifully with scripture truthfully with scripture and um in particular, um, because what, what we know Satan as the God of this world is able to do is offer anyone who is looking for that immediate relief or that immediate escape or that immediate uh, remedy to boredom or suffering or pain. He, he offers endless options. And what he shares with his students in an effort to you know, really help them navigate the challenge of life with all of its pain and its suffering. And, the, you know, the truth that it will crush you, what, what he attempts to, uh, to, how he attempts to lead them through that is quite frankly, you got to find something worth being crushed for. Uh, that's that's as simple as that psychologist can put it. If you find something worth being crushed for, if you find something worth dying for, if you find something worth enduring the struggle for, now you can have a life of meaning and significance and pur purpose with perseverance. That communicated to me um, as I as I just heard him speak a couple times and how the Lord is using it in my life right now is, he's, is he is helping me frame sanctification and the sanctification process in a new light in a very encouraging way and it's if I can back up a couple steps when when Jesus, so, so let me connect the Bible, the Bible side of this now. When, when Jesus arrives on the scene, 
into a Roman Empire dominated world. His single sermon over and over and over again is what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So into a, into a world that is literally dominated by one kingdom, I think it's super important that we remember Jesus did not come on the scene and say, repent for Christianity is at hand. Repent for religion is at hand. Repent for slightly better morality is at hand. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he, from that day forward, went around, what's up, Harmony? Just came prancing on in here. <laughs> From that point forward, he went around, as the word said, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, preaching the good news of the kingdom, preaching the reality of the kingdom is what? At hand. It's begun. It's beginning. It's now. It's here. So then he gets teachers or, or um uh, Pharisees like Nicodemus saying, well, what do I got to do to get this? What do I got to do to be in? In John chapter 3, and Jesus says what? Most assuredly, I say to you, ye must be born again. Okay, what's that mean? Most assuredly, I say to you, ye must be born of water and of spirit. All right, so Jesus is mentioning something about this kingdom and how to be a part of it is a literal new birth. And the, much of the New Testament writing then goes on to help us realize that something supernatural has to happen for us to be a part of this kingdom. The Bible calls it being born again. The Bible calls it being regenerated. The Bible calls it being adopted. The Bible calls it being saved. The Bible calls it being clothed in Christ, being one in Christ, being buried with Christ, being marked by the blood of the true unblemished lamb. There are many different phrases to communicate the supernatural thing that God does. And then Jesus takes this group that has said yes to that and he gives them a purpose. Remember, this is how the Holy Spirit is helping me to re-recognize sanctification in a whole different light, with a whole different why, and with much needed encouragement. There is purpose for everyone who's born again. There is a why. There is a, a mission, or a commission, if you will. So in Matthew 8, I'm sorry, 28. Eighteen through twenty. I'll read it again for us quickly. I've gotten a couple comments lately, by the way, about the video and about how difficult it is to hear when people read scriptures. So in order to make this as awkward as humanly possible, whenever we read scriptures, especially if it's you guys, I'm going to have you stand up to read it. Okay, that will automatically make you louder and more 
more able to be picked up by the microphone. And unfortunately, what it's going to mean is I'm going to read more, which I'm not very good at, but just bear with me, please. The Great Commission, Matthew 28 in verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Now go to Matt, uh, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1. So in Matthew 28, Jesus gives his disciples the Great Commission. The Great Commission is a global takeover. We spent many minutes last week discussing the global nature of this takeover. The kingdom of heaven is going to cover the whole earth. It will accomplish the fullness of the Father's purposes, which is his rule and his reign and his sovereignty covering the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. Jesus, to that end, has already been given all authority to accomplish that purpose. So when he tells his disciples, go out and preach this to the whole nation, to the whole nations, rather, to the whole planet, he means exactly that. This is a global takeover. Interestingly enough, after he says that, one of the next things he tells this same group is to don't go anywhere. You got to wait, right? You got to wait for what? Something that's been promised. What am I going to get in Acts chapter 2? But let's go back to Acts chapter 1. And someone please stand and read for us Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. This is prior to the uh, Spirit giving, being given, just prior to the Spirit being given, but after the Great Commission has already been handed out. What is the Great Commission? It's the why. Listen to me, saints. What is the Great Commission? It is the ultimate cure to ever being adrift. It is the only and final remedy to ever being adrift. The Great Commission is. Go ahead, Barbara. Listen to me. Hold on. What's the scope of the question that they asked? Small. No. The scope of the question they asked is, is huge. Yeah. Right? They asked a national question. Did they not? They asked a kingdom, a kingdom question. When's the kingdom getting established? When's the kingdom come? When's the global takeover begin? Isn't that what they're asking? They're asking a kingdom question. They're asking an enormous question. And listen to the answer. He said to them, It is not for you to know 
Listen to this. When the disciples, after they're being told to wait, ask a kingdom question, we're talking about purpose. We're talking about mission. We're talking about the final and ultimate remedy to ever being adrift. When the disciples act, ask a kingdom question about this global movement, the answer is what? You don't have to worry about the big stuff. What you do need to know is that you're going to be given power from on high to go and be a witness. Right? So the answer to, to the big kingdom question is very individual. It's singular to the, to the individual, is it not? So, so here's why that's important, and here's, here's what I'm getting at. The gospel of the kingdom is absolutely a global agenda. And I made that point so passionately last week because we need to hear loud and clear that it is not American, an American agenda. It's not a Republican agenda or a conservative agenda or an American agenda in any way. The kingdom of heaven is a global agenda. Okay? But this global agenda is established individual by individual. The kingdom of heaven is a global takeover. The global rule and reign of the true king of kings and lord of lords. But that global rule and reign of the true king of kings and lord of lords is established one individual at a time. Why is that so important? Because because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. Has it not? We could read another dozen passages like we did last week, but I think we got the point. He has already been given authority over the heavens, the earth, and under the earth. Over every throne, every dominion, every authority, every principality and power. His name above every name in this age and the age to come. He says in the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me. He already is ruler over every king of the earth. He already is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Are we all in one accord there? Okay, so because that is the truth, he already is there. He is waiting presently, right? Hebrews chapter 11, after he committed one sacrifice, made one sacrifice Perfecting forever those who are being made perfect. He went and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And now he is waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. Right? He is waiting. He is waiting for what? His enemies to be made his footstool. He is already ruling and already reigning and already has authority. So how does that rule and reign cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea? Well, Jesus said it. You're going to be given power from on high as an individual to allow this rule and reign to be present in your life. 
And when you do that, you will testify to the whole world that this is all real. And forget about ever being able to do that on your own. So do not leave, do not leave the upper room. Because this is not human effort. And this is not human agenda. And this is not human platforms or human policies. And why do I say it that way? Because abortion, saints, will not end because we have a more pro-choice president. Abortion will end when fornication stops. Listen to me. The abuse of drugs and alcohol won't stop because a more conservative judge puts the right laws in place. The abuse of drugs and alcohol will stop when people are filled by the Spirit. And biblical marriage and biblical sexuality and the biblical family unit Guys, that is not under attack because of political platforms. The word of God is clear. It's under attack because people have traded the worship of the creator for the worship of the created. And every time that happens, God hands over the idolater to judgment of what? Debased mind. Let me read what a debased mind leads to. This is Romans chapter 1. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evildoers, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do these, but also approve of those who practice them as well. Nothing changes because of a human president. Nothing changes because of political platforms or parties. There is no human effort that fixes a broken human heart. Every evil, every unrighteousness, every deception, every idol, everything in this world that brings suffering and death is, is because of one thing. Forsaken the truth. Trading the truth for a lie. Rebellion against the creator God. The forsaking of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. That is the root of every issue. And what those who are invited into the kingdom of heaven... No, is that the only cure, the only solution, 
the only salvation there is, is a heart transplant, divine, supernatural. That's right. In your own life. And that, that in turn impacts other lives. Just depends. And that's why Elijah told him, how long will you halt between two opinions? That's right. You're going to either serve this one or you're going to serve You cannot man. serve both. Serve God on this side of the river or God on that side of the river? Yeah. Old right. man or new man? Old life or new life? Flesh or spirit? Yeah. What fellowship does one have with the other? Right? It's always been a line. There's always been a line. There has to be a line. Because this is not a story of human will and human effort and human ability and human capability. We put our hope in no human. We put our trust in no human. The only thing that can save anybody is a divine heart transplant. And it's been promised to anyone who would fall on the stone. So, the, so the, the born again moment, the moment of becoming a brand new creation, of having our heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh, of being regenerated, of being adopted. From that moment forward, we have a forever why. We have a forever purpose. We have a forever meaning. the single forever cure to ever being adrift. We have something worth being crushed for. We have something worth dying for. We have something worth suffering for. We have something worth struggling for. It's called the Great Commission. And the only reason we even know about it is because by God's choice and by God's permission and by God's spirit, he opened our eyes and he called us to himself. Somehow, some way, if you are authentically born again, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel has let you know that he is reconciling all things unto himself through Christ. And if you said yes to that, he immediately employs you in the ministry of reconciliation. So you have a why every minute of every day. You have something worth being crushed for every minute of every day. It's the ministry of reconciliation. You have something worth dying for every minute of every day. The ministry of reconciliation. You have something worth suffering for and persevering for and enduring for through to the end. Every minute of every day. The ministry of reconciliation. The very reason why, you, why, why each of us have been saved. Beautiful. Thank you, God, for new encouragement, for new fire. <laughs> it.
So to the kids in particular, now let's transition from the big why to the little application. The big why to the little application. What's the big why? The kingdom of heaven. The global takeover. The establishment of the rule and reign and absolute sovereignty of Christ over every living thing. The ways of God, the truth of God, the commandments of God, the statutes, the judgments, the precepts, every, everything that comes from the throne being established on the earth. That is the big why. But how do we transition from understanding that big why and having that big why be our remedy from ever having a moment of adriftness, ever having a moment without purpose or without why or without passion for what gets us up every day? How do we transition from understanding the big why to what does it mean every day, practically? And for that, I'll, I'll go back to Jordan Peterson because I think he does a pretty beautiful way of making that, that step. He says, um, he says, many college students seek to find purpose by jumping onto giant global social and political issues such as um, the global environment. And, and they get fired up and passionate about, about protesting uh, the destruction of, of the globe when in his words, they can't even keep their own dorm room clean. And um, he goes on to say, people who don't have their own houses in order should be very careful about going out and protesting and reorganizing the whole world. And this is where um, I'm praying that there is conviction amongst the body of Christ because there is a lot of, it's very easy to jump on political bandwagons for political purposes, even ones that align biblically, that's easy. But to keep our own house clean, that's a whole different thing. To keep our own camp clean, whole different thing. And, and this is sort of how the Lord convicted me of it. This has been a very challenging last two weeks for me. There's been very, I'm being disciplined in expensive ways right now, and I'm grateful for it. 
and, and, um, and even for me to stand on this pulpit and share this truth is way easier than living it. And when the Lord reminds me that Christ is sitting on the throne until his enemies are being made his footstool, it's real easy for me to think about his enemies in big global ways or in political ways or in national ways. But it takes a lot more courage to recognize that my pride is his enemy. And my greed and my selfish ambition is his enemy. And any addictions and idols and deceptions that I live in, those are the enemies that he's waiting to make his footstool. How do we make a global takeover a daily mission? By recognizing that Christ is putting the sin in my life under his rule. The idols in my life, the deceptions in my life. I don't have to worry about when the kingdom is coming. Jesus told the disciples, you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to worry about the global environment. You just keep your own dorm room clean. You don't need to worry about powers and principalities and kings and rulers and presidents and parties. I'm asking to be Lord in your own house. I'm asking to be sovereign over your marriage. And over your finances. And over how you parent. So when, so when the Lord began to to start us on this this revelation, if you remember, this was uh, this is about building togetherness, and this came as an outflow of. 
Tabernacles this year. And what the Lord was teaching me was that there's a level of there's a level of unity that is available that we've not yet experienced. There's a level of oneness and trust and commitment and love that's being offered. And he put right in the middle of that offering this understanding that sanctification and the ongoing process of sanctification is, is probably the primary way in which that togetherness is achieved or taken hold of. And I still remember that the, the, the morning that all this was coming to me, I felt like the Lord gave me like, I think I even shared with you guys like four, four messages. And it's been even more than that. But, but there, was, um, there was some clarity in that initial download that, that th this teaching about sanctification was going to focus on a very key moment. And that key moment is when sin is being exposed. And how in that moment when sanctification as a process is being embraced, that there will be at least three players involved. My role specifically as a pastor, the role of this congregation, and then the response of the individual. And it was... Um, I think the only, I think there were two, if I remember right, two very specific scriptures that I knew came to mind that very morning. And, um, and I felt like one was for me personally and one was for our congregational direction. And the piece for me specifically as pastor was Jesus dealing with the rich young ruler. And then the, um, the congregational piece was I didn't even know where it was at the time, but it was in Matthew 18 when um, it talks about dealing with a brother in sin. I felt like the Lord gave me those two scriptures that very first day, even though they wouldn't be taught on for um, two or three weeks later. I felt like those were two that, that we would be going through. And so what's happened since that initial day is a big correction for myself. And um, I share this as, as a testimony and as um, an expression of my gratitude for how the Lord is refining me. When Jesus is dealing with the rich young ruler. We all remember how that story plays out. He comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, you know the commandments. He lists a few of them. The guy says, yes, I've been doing those since I was a boy. And Jesus, in um, the specific verses, uh, 
Mark 10, 21, the text says, Jesus looked at him, loved him, and then said, here is the one thing you lack. And what I've always known my role to be as pastor is to have the courage to have that kind of love for each of you and anyone else that the Lord gives me an opportunity to minister to. And, and the awareness for me has always been simple, that real love always goes directly to the sin. Real love always goes to the idol. It always goes to the deception. It always goes to the stumbling block. And why is that? Because that's where all the pain is. And that's where the suffering is. And that's where the healing is possible. And that's where the restoration is possible. And that's where the change break and the oppression releases and the freedom comes and the wholeness comes and the peace comes. So I've always been aware that real love exposes sin that way. With a heart to deal with it. And one of the one of the reasons that I've known that that's where God has called me to be, well, there's, there's two, really. Um, he's been so crystal clear with me about false teaching and false, false prophecy and how false teaching and pro false prophecy is always fundamentally going to ignore sin or excuse sin, which is to lead to use a Deuteronomy 13 quote, to lead anyone to a God that they do not know. And I've been very diligent against ever leading in that way, leading in a way that would excuse sin, leading in a way that would ignore sin, leading in a way that would turn a blind eye out of a, a recognition that real love wouldn't do that and out of literally a legitimate fear on my own part of never ever wanting to cross that line. And one of the reasons I have that line so clearly uh, in my mind is because I've seen church leadership ignore that line over and over and over again. And I've seen sin ignored over and over and over again. I've seen when the, when the rich young ruler is told, go and sell everything, and then they begin to walk away, I've seen the pastor turn the commandment around or water the commandment down or, or decide the commandment isn't for them or isn't for now or whatever, whatever excuse it was to try and cause that person to not leave. 
and I have, and I've seen it so often, and I've seen the compromise that it causes, and how it just infects a church and and, and spreads. And I've, and I, what I've done is, is I've swung too far in the opposite direction to say, well, when I bring the truth, if if that offends, and if someone walks, goodbye. Without much more effort. And without much more concern. And with a little bit of And what I recognize is that God's asking more of me. And I didn't have this correction come until he focused me on Matthew chapter 18. And all I knew about, the only thing that I knew that was going to be spoken about on this topic as it relates to the community piece in, in the sanctification process was the dealing with a brother in sin part of Matthew 18. I didn't know what was in that chapter. I just knew there was a text in which Jesus spoke very specifically about how to confront sin in community. I didn't even know where it was. It's in Matthew chapter 18. When I got to that Sunday, or Saturday rather, to begin speaking about sanctification in community and the community responsibility and the prescription for walking out sanctification in community. That's the first time that I, I got to Matthew 18 and read the whole chapter. And, and what I recognize, and God's been showing me this often lately, is he's perfect. And his ways are perfect. And his word is perfect. Perfect for correction and reproof and training in all righteousness so that this man of God can be equipped. So I want to go to Matthew 18, and I want to show you what the Lord has shown me and, and give voice to the testimony of the correction that he is doing in me because it's significant. So go to Matthew 18 with me, please. Actually, before we get to Matthew 18, put your finger in Matthew 18, and then flip with me quick to Matthew chapter 5. Someone read the, the heading to the chapter of Matthew 18. What's your Bible say? Okay, everyone see that? The heading of chapter 18 of Matthew's gospel is who is the greatest with a question mark. Everyone see that? This is because the disciples were asking that very question, which is interesting because a short time earlier, Jesus very specifically spoke about greatness in the kingdom. All right, so hold your finger there. Go to Matthew chapter 5, and someone please read verse 17 through 19. 
Matthew 5, 17 through 19. Standing up, please. Thank you. And 19, please. So, if you ignore the least commandment to, and teach others to do the same, you will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay. So, Jesus right there just very clearly established how greatness in the kingdom is taken hold of. It's by what? Obedience. What does God value? Obedience. What does God desire? Obedience. What pleases God? Obedience. Why is this important? Because there's a global agenda for the rule and reign of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel to cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. That will be realized in the end. Revelation 21 and 22 is quite clear about that. Right? But the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we have an opportunity to walk in all of God's ways here and now, and that is how greatness in this global agenda is taken hold of. So Jesus has already answered the question that they are asking. So when they ask the question, we should probably be able to speculate something about his answer, right? It's probably going to be obedience related. Does that make sense? Does it make sense that when the disciples ask who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, is Jesus likely going to talk about obedience? Probably. If Jesus is going to talk about obedience, is Jesus likely going to talk about sin? Yes, because sin is lawlessness. And lawlessness is the breaking of God's commandments. So you can't talk about obedience really without talking about sin. They're going to go hand in hand often. right? So Jesus is getting ready to unpack a very clear teaching, which with each of the, of, the, of the teachings in this chapter, they're all totally connected. They're all literally communicating the same thing. And I praise God that he's opened my eyes to this truth, to rightly divide the word in this area, to, to, to bring about a correction in me that was necessary, a refinement in me that was necessary. I praise God for it. Listen to what he says. We, we read most of this, so I'm going to just kind of paraphrase it. He begins with um, basically saying, first of all, you've got to be converted. Why? Because unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and Sadducees, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven, right? Because no one is justified by works of the law. So he makes it very, very clear this is not obedience for the sake of justification, does everyone understand what I'm saying when I say that? Because if you don't understand what I'm saying when I say obedience is not about justification, you could very easily hear a wrong gospel coming out of my mouth. I am never, ever, 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 ever talking about obedience to the law for the sake of justification. I'm talking about sanctification. Okay, so he makes it very clear before you even start to obey, you got to be converted. What's that mean? You got to be born again. You got to be adopted. Yeah. You got to have your heart of flesh stone removed with the heart of flesh. And on that heart of flesh, the law of God is going to be written on it. 
You got to have the spirit of God put inside you and that very spirit will move you to keep my commandments. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36. The very heart of the new covenant. Right? So he's saying, first of all, that has to happen. Then once that happens, the obedience piece starts. And how, will pe- how important is the obedience piece? Well, he still says very clearly, if you take any of mine, anyone that belongs to me, and you begin to teach them to disobey, or you begin to teach them to sin, what's the penalty? Severe. Why? Because that's false teaching and false prophecy. That's leading people to a false God or a false Jesus. And it's happening all day, every day. He's being super clear. Okay? You don't teach people to disobey. You teach all the commandments. You do all the commandments. This is how greatness in the kingdom has taken hold. This is how engagement of the kingdom is walked out. It always has been. So then he goes on to say, guess what? If you have something in your life that's causing you to sin, this is how important you need to recognize getting rid of that thing is. If it's your leg, cut it off. If it's your eye, gouge it out. I know that's intense, but what's the heart of the message? Sin has got to be dealt with. Listen to me, guys. This entire paragraph or or chapter, the entire chapter of Matthew chapter 18, the, 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 the summary statement of the entire chapter is sin's got to be dealt with. Period. Period. I've always known that's important. I've always known it. I've always known I have to walk that line. I've always known for me to shepherd a congregation well, I have to be clear about that. Sin's got to be dealt with. Sin cannot be ignored, it cannot be overlooked, it cannot be excused. Real love goes to the offense, goes to the breach, goes to the lie, goes to the counterfeit. And does what? Cut it off. Prune it. Deal with it. Correct it. This is literally what sanctification is all about. This is the moment that the Lord has been teaching us going all the way back to the week after Tabernacles. This key moment in the journey that if the Spirit of God is inside of you, you will be led to have over and over and over and over and over again when your life and my life and something in it contradicts the Word of God and the ways of God and the truths of God and the commandments of God. When that happens, something's got to get exposed so it can be dealt with. Jesus is speaking so clearly about this, and then he, and then he speaks to. He speaks by a parable, to 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 what's at stake and why it's so important, right? And in this parable, again, I, I can paraphrase it, but he says about the flock and one that wanders. Actually, let's read this because this is so huge. Someone read uh, verses 10 through 10 through 14 out loud, real loud for me, please. This is, a, this is a chapter about dealing with sin. This is a chapter about dealing with sin. Go ahead, Michael. 
Take heed that ye do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Whew. This is one of the lines that God started convicting me with. Because this is about what? A sheep that strays. And he says about a sheep that strays, you better recognize that Father God sees them. You better recognize how much God loves that sheep. You better recognize that the God of heaven will absolutely not allow that sheep to be lost. So how dare I, when the rich young ruler walks off, how dare I so quickly dust my hands off? This is the beginning of the conviction. Go ahead, Michael. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, Assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So this is how clearly the Lord's convicted me about this. He says to, to sit with the ninety-nine... Because we all are in agreement, because we're all walking it out, because we're all staying the course. He says to stick with those 99 and ignore the one that's straying is literally playing church. Because real love starts with this one thing you lacked. Real ministry starts with this is, this is where Satan's having a heyday. Does that make sense? So to, to sit with the ones that are, that are safe, to be comfortable with the ones that are safe, is to, is to literally like ignore real ministry, especially from a, from a shepherd's role. And, and part of the revelation or the conviction <clears throat> came to me as I started to get my head around Holy cow, it's actually my job to go get the one that's hurting. It's my job to go get the one that's stuck in sin. Not to excuse the sin and never, ever, ever to widen the path or allow them to justify it, but I got to go get them. You got to go get them. We got to go get them. And I got to thinking about this 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 trend in modern Christianity towards the, you know, the mega church. And I was like, if this is the pastor's role is to recognize in a congregation when someone's getting attacked, recognize in a congregation when sin is eating someone's lunch and go get them by doing what? Exposing the sin, confronting the sin, calling it out, dealing with it, being real, being honest. If that's a pastor's job, how many mega church pastors are able to do that for congregations of thousands of people? It, can't, it literally cannot be happening. 
And as I was sitting in my chair having that thought, God literally said to me, if you don't go do that, you're no different. And this is no different. Wow, what a conviction. I like your sweatshirt, Owen. And when that sin is exposed, saints, listen to me. You don't go after the sheep by making the pen larger. Listen to me. I won't do that. I won't go after the sheep by making the path wider. I won't go after the sheep by justifying sin, excusing sin, showing mercy to sin in any way. I'll go after the sheep out of mercy, but it will only be to restore them. It will only be to bring them back into the very very narrow path. But when they come back and when that restoration happens, what? God gets gloried. God gets his way. Parties in heaven happen. How much more important, that's where he convicted me, don't play church. Deal with sin. The enemy came to destroy the works of the enemy. So stop playing church and go after sin. So right out of that teaching, then we get super specific, actual instruction on how to deal with sin. Isn't Jesus' teaching perfect? If you rightly divide it, if you see it in its context, and if the Lord opens your eyes to it, it's so perfect. Immediately, when you go, what does it look like to go after the one that's gone? You expose the sin. You say this one thing you lack. You say, dude... This is an idol in your life. Amazing. You do it in person, face to face. And if they won't listen to you, you grab someone else and do it. And if that won't happen, then you do it in front of the whole church. Why? Because we need to be in one accord that this is how, this is the level of violence that this congregation will bring against sin and the enemy. Because that's love. And that's real ministry, and that's real church. I had dinner with Diane on Thursday night or Wednesday night, kind of unpacking some of this, and I literally said, I feel like real ministry is just getting ready to begin. Yep. This is going to be painful. It's already been painful. It's already been expensive. I recognize Jesus saying this is going to cost because we're not playing church. We're going after the sin. We're going after the lies. We're going after the idolatry. We're commanded to do it. God's given me a brand new conviction for it, brand new understanding of it. I no longer have to fear widening the path to go after a sheep that's strength. That's the clarity he's given me. And I praise God for it because I have freedom. To love and show mercy and endless patience, and yet never feel like I'm even flirting with being a false prophet or a false teacher justifying sin, leading you to a false God. And if you can't tell, I'm grateful for that, and I'm excited about that. And then I'm 
the explanation point on the, on the end of it is the parable that I, as I read chapter 18, 15 times, I never got to it. How stupid. How crazy of me to never get to the, the parting shot. Because the parting shot gives me, it gave me perfect clarity on how, why this is possible. On how do I fix my heart the right way to constantly be willing to go after the sheep that strays. And what's the parable teach? Forgiveness. Why? Because God freaking did it for you. And does it for you over and over and over and over. How many times? Seven? Nope. Seven times seven. Nope. Endless times. God's mercy and patience for you, Eric, has been never-ending. So how dare you lose patience with someone that only comes to church once a month? How dare you lose patience? How dare you even think about not forgiving with the amount of times that I have forgiven you, the amount of times that you have returned to your idol and your sin and your deceptions. Man, what a perfect teaching. Matthew 18, holy cow. Praise God for opening my eyes. Praise God for refining me. So here's what you're going to get from me, saints. When you slander again, I'm going to say, you're forgiven. Go and sin no more. And when you get drunk again, I'm going to say, you're forgiven. Go and sin no more. And when you lie, you're forgiven. Go and sin no more. And when I see any of you out where you don't belong, God's telling me I got to go get you. And when I go and get you, it will be to expose the sin that's taken you out there or the lie, or the idol, or the counterfeit, or the compromise, or the friend, or the spouse, or your kids, or your in-laws, or your traditions, or anything else, and it's going to get exposed. And Matthew 18 gives each of us permission as brothers and sisters of this family to do that for each other. That's real ministry. That's a real congregation. That's a real community in which first and foremost, Jesus is ruling and reigning. And as a direct outflow of that, his enemies are being made his footstool daily. The works of the enemy destroyed daily. The chains being broken daily. The hopelessness and bondage 
and conflict and strife just getting destroyed. And I called this out before I even knew, before I even knew it, I called this out. Literally believe I said something like I'm declaring war on sin. Wow, a lot has happened since then. Because, because that's a big, in the spirit realm, that's a big st statement. And so here's what I recognize, saints, and here's how I leave us today. Much is being exposed right now. Deep roots. Deep idolatry. Deep decisions. Crossroads. It's all getting exposed, and it's going to continue to get exposed. And going back to the very beginning of this revelation, what the Lord is saying is how we respond in this moment is either going to bring about a supernatural unity or it's going to divide. And the individual's response will determine that. And I feel like I have much to say about that. And yet, I don't know if I'm going to get to say it. Which is really interesting to me. I'm curious to see what the next couple of weeks look like. Because I'm having surgery on Tuesday. Here's what I'll say. I'm going to let the Lord lead. And if I can prepare sober and deliver sober, I will. If I can't, I won't speak. If I can't speak, my guess is that the Lord is calling every one of you to himself to begin asking the question, do I really want to take this journey? Am I willing to live that real and raw and exposed in community? Maybe that's why I'm going to have to sit down and shut up for a little bit. Time will tell. God's will be done. Father, we just declare your will be done. We prophesy out loud that your will will be done. And all of your enemies will be made your footstool. And you will tread the, the winepress of the fierceness of the anger of God Almighty, subduing the nations bringing about your absolute sovereignty, your absolute rule, your absolute order, your absolute justice. And I praise you, Father, that you are giving us encouragement today to embrace that now and here in our own lives every day.
would you just encourage us in our inner man to recognize the beautiful struggle of sanctification? The beautiful crushing of surrendering our whole life to you. The necessary dying every day to our old self that we might be faithful and true witnesses. We praise you, God, for our new hearts, and we praise you, God, for your spirit, without which this is absolutely impossible. And so we bear witness that this is all for you, this is all about you. This is all because of you. And I pray that by your spirit, you would guide everyone in this congregation with their right next step. In Jesus' name, amen.